What's interesting is that Luke 2 is almost like a, a vetting of Jesus, a background check. Have you ever gotten a job where you had to have a, a background check and it just kind of scares you a little bit? Because you think, well, what are they going to find? They're going to find out, I'll tell you, they're going to find out I eat way too much ice cream. They're going to find out something that I have too many guitars hanging on my wall in my office at home. And they're going to look at me funny. Even Jesus in his birth, we are asking, is this really the one? And it's okay for us to ask that. Now, we're looking at it 2,000 years later, but think of those at the time of the birth of Jesus. Or when Luke is writing, Mary and Joseph even thinking, what has Gabriel told us? And they, they understand basically what's happening, but they're still figuring it out. And we remember that Luke is writing to someone named, can you remember for a candy bar today? <laughs> Luke is writing, you look at the beginning of his gospel, to someone named Theophilus. Theophilus means lover of God, whether that is his real name or just a fake name to protect his identity. Most excellent Theophilus, he was probably somebody of a Roman or a government official. But this Theophilus wants to know, really, is this Jesus who was born the actual promised Savior of the world, the King of Kings? And I think it's okay. I think of you and I telling people in our community about Jesus, who, who, as I shared last week, people know less and less about Jesus, and they know more and more about Marvel superheroes. Well, in a strange sense, Jesus is the only God who has become man to save the world from an evil force. As silly as that sounds, you do you know that Satan has counterfeited that story over and over and over again? And that's what our kids are obsessed with. Jesus is the real deal. Jesus is the real deal. Jesus was born in the days of Caesar Augustus. Now think of at the historical time that he was born, Rome is the superpower. Rome is ruling the world. They would claim this is a period of peace, but really not because of their benevolence, but because of their incredible power. No one wants to stand up against the Roman Empire. This is the days of Caesar Augustus. Rome is shifting from being ruled by generals to being ruled by Caesars. And Caesar Augustus, is one of, if not the first, of the Caesars shifting from. I can't remember if he was the first or one of the first. <coughs> Augustus is the title. His name is Caesar. He didn't want to be called king because that wasn't important enough. What's more important than being called the king of Rome? They finally landed on the title Augustus, 
which means of the gods. He wanted to be greater than a king. He wanted to be divine. And so we're shifting into this idea of the Roman rulers seeing themselves as gods. And at that time, with this huge inflated ego in Rome, the king of kings is born. The king. And Herod the Great will hear of the birth of Jesus when the wise men arrive around, around three years after his birth from probably Persia. And his ego is threatened. You know, Herod the Great was a tiny little man, probably, I can't remember, around five plus inches, five feet. He was a little guy. Do you know who Danny DeVito is? Yeah. This is related to my study. This is really important. It just came to my mind. <laughs> the best reference I can think of is Danny DeVito. I dropped my mom off at the airport one, once at LAX to, I think, fly to my sister's in Denver. And suddenly at that gate, remember the days when you could go to the gate to take people? I'm with my mom at the airport, and standing next to me was Herod the Great. <laughs> Danny DeVito literally came up to about my chin. And so I stuck my hand, my, I had to bend over and stuck my hand out and shook his hand. And that was, that was my big celebrity sighting of the day. But it's in these days of inflated politics. Sound familiar? Yeah. Okay, I'm not going to go there. But this is an old story of rulers thinking they are more important than they really are. And in spite of whatever is going on in Rome or Washington or Brussels or Moscow, who is in charge? The Lord's in charge. And so you and I can have peace in spite of mandates and all these things And I think just as a passing note, I think all of this that's going on in the world is just a precursor and moving us toward globalism. Okay, I'm not prone to sensationalizing everything and we don't need to. The vaccine is not the mark of the beast. Okay, that's coming later. But you can see how it would happen, right? Okay, that's what this is doing for us. This is showing us how it could even happen. And so we're going there. This is exactly what the Bible says will happen in the last days before the return of Christ. And just as the Bible predicted his first coming, it predicts his second coming. So prophecies fulfilled in the first coming. What about the ones of his second coming? Easy. They're going to happen just as well as the first ones did. So we're going to kind of walk through Luke chapter two. And Luke is summarizing the early years, the early days of Jesus life to report to this person, Theophilus, some of the details, the facts of the childhood of Jesus Christ. Uh, We've looked at a couple of them already, but we're going to finish up this chapter this morning. The first one, if you're taking notes, is that he was born in Bethlehem. 
This is familiar to us, but it's important as we're vetting this child to know, is he really the one? Because, you know, flash forward to Jesus, the adult spending time with his disciples, he'll warn them not to believe in false Christs. Matthew 24. And did you know of the, do you know how many books are in the New Testament? This is, I didn't expect to have a quiz today, but we're going to go with it. How many books in the New Testament? 27. 39 in the old, that makes 66. That's all the math we're doing today. So 27 books. Did you know of the 27 books, every one except one has a warning against false Christs, false doctrines, false Christians, or false something. Everyone except one, and that is Philemon. So it's important for us to put things to the test and to make sure we're trusting in the, the true things that the Lord has given to us. Born in Bethlehem, that's important. Micah the prophet said he would be born in Bethlehem. That's Micah 5.2. But Mary is pregnant. Why would they go from Nazareth to Bethlehem when she is in the middle of her pregnancy? There's no reason they would do it. And yet that's exactly what God said would happen. How does God make that happen? An edict, an edict from Caesar Augustus. This man who thinks he is of the gods is actually serving the very purposes of the God of heaven and earth. The second thing we pick up on at verse 21 is that Jesus was circumcised the eighth day. Verse 21, when the when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the in the womb. Now, What's important about this is that Mary and Joseph are following the law. In other words, they're doing things the right way. They're not above the rules. Don't you hate it when you hear of a ruler or the child of a ruler being above the law? To me, that's, that's so, what's so important here is that Jesus is raised in righteousness even though you don't maybe care about the requirements of the law and circumcision the eighth day and all that stuff. But it's important in this, what we'd call this, this vetting process, his, this background check. And so Mary and, Jesus, Mary and Joseph are following what the law required. It was in Genesis 17, Verses 9 and 10, that God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. So that was just among the, the males of Israel. That was their, the sign of the covenant that these people were committed to having this relationship with God. Now, it was really a sign of something that would go on in the heart. And Paul clarifies that in Romans, that the cutting away of the flesh is like the flesh of our old life. When we repent, it is like a circumcision of our hearts. And ultimately, 
we remember God's not looking at religious ritual. He's looking at our hearts. So the outward things we do, like water baptism, is an outward ceremony like circumcision, but it's supposed to be symbolic of what's happened in your heart. That's the thing. It is about our hearts, and that's always what the Lord cares for. Just as a passing note, you know, what's interesting about the eighth day of circumcision for the male children, that was the day in which the blood would coagulate. And so now in the doc, in the hospitals, they do that with medicines. But the Lord had it all worked out. The very day the blood would coagulate, they would circumcise the male children on the eighth day and They didn't know that, but God had it all worked out. The third thing is that they named him Jesus. They named him Jesus as Gabriel told, told them, you know, his name, it's not just, here's the name. His name speaks of his mission and of his authority. I want you to write that down. His name speaks of his mission and his authority, his mission As was said, he shall save his people from their sins, but not just his people, but the world. Jesus is the Greek version of Joshua, which is a shortened version of Jehovah Hashua, which means God is salvation. So, so so much packed into names. That's when names meant something, not let's get a baby book and and flip through it. And find names. His authority. You remember in Acts when Peter and John healed a lame man at the temple. The Jewish leader said, by what authority or by what name have you done this? Who do you think you are that you can just go around helping people? Don't you love that? God forbid you and I should just go out in the community and help poor people. (laughs) But I think we're going to do that. It upset their system. It was taking people away from following their little religious game. And people are listening, are listening to the apostles because the power of God is on is upon their lives. And that's what I want for each of you. We're not just here as religious people. We're not saying, hey, we got to go to church today. Let's go to Hobby Lobby. Oh, I forgot their clothes today. My prayer for every one of you is that you know God and his power is upon your life because you and I are to go back out there in the community in the mission field and help people. Our job is to be a light in our own community. So Peter answered in Acts 4.10, be it known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand before you whole. Now, the name of Jesus, and you know, we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. I I was raised in a little Baptist church in Los Angeles, and I was always told we pray, and when we pray, at the end of our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And I even was Somebody told me as a teenager, if you don't say in Jesus name, amen, then your prayers won't be answered. That's kind of weird. So what does that mean 
to pray in Jesus' name? Or what does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? Now, of course, we don't want to just flippantly say, oh God, or oh Jesus. And that's usually what we think it means. But you know, it means a whole lot more than that. The fact that you prayed a prayer and said, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, that I would be born again and placed into the family of God. At that moment, you came into the family of God and you were then given the authority of the name of Jesus because you're part of the family. And what that means is then as a member of the family, you have every right to ask for blessings, to expect God to direct your life and to care for you because you are now under that family name and authority. So to, to take the Lord's name in vain also means that you have taken his name, but you don't ask for any blessings. You still live as if you're somebody in the world that's never joined the family of God. Did you know that that's the, the primary meaning of taking the Lord's name in vain? How do you feel whenever you know somebody who is suffering in their life, they're in trouble or causing all kinds of trouble in their life and they're born again and yet they're not living under the blessings of God. Don't you feel bad for them? They are, they've taken the Lord's name without receiving the benefits. That, that is what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. Isn't, isn't that amazing? So think about your life when you claim the name of Jesus in your life. Are you then acting with the family name and authority that's given to you? Are you? Do you come before God in prayer? Do you intercede for your kids when you need a job? All kinds of needs. Jesus says, I, I remember in Jesus said, I think it was around John 16, he said to the disciples, you know, whatever you ask in my name, I'll give it to you or my father will give it to you. And then he says, but so far you haven't asked for anything. Please ask. You've been given the name of Jesus. So anytime a true child of God prays, whether he says in the name of Jesus or not, he is praying in the name of Jesus because you've been given the authority to do so. That's what it means. So if you're a Christian, act like it. <laughs> okay, did I say that kindly? Yeah. Okay, if you're a Christian, act like it. My grandkids are not afraid to ask for things. They keep asking. And it doesn't irritate me at all. Yes, it does. But it amazes me that they have no limit to how much they're going to ask. And if they don't, if I'm not around, it's grandma. Yeah. Okay. So if you're in the family, just relax and be okay to ask the Lord for help. Take his name upon your life. Number four, I think I'll get through my notes today. Number four, they present Jesus to the Lord. Again, just following what the law would require. Verse 22 
when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of Moses, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. Now, I don't understand this. I'm going to explain to you. But when a woman had a child, she couldn't come to the temple for for 40 days if she had a boy. But if she had a girl, do you know how many days she had to wait? 80. Because girls are twice, twice as much work as boys. No, I just made that up. Okay. Now, I have three daughters. I... I I was playing, I have six grandsons now and two granddaughters, but my, my previous life, I have three older sisters who kicked me around and dressed me in dresses. And now I have three daughters. They're all married. I have three sons-in-law. And now of my eight grandkids, I have six grandsons and two granddaughters. So I'm not, I'm not biased against girls. I love girls. And so far, all my girls like me. Um, but this is interesting in the law that it's because of the, the blood and all the delivery and all that stuff. A woman had to wait 40 days if she had a boy, 80 days if she had a girl. So 33 days after the circumcision of Jesus, they were required by the law to present their firstborn boy to God and to bring an offering for Mary's purification. Here's the reference, Exodus 13, 2. God says, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast. God says, it is mine. Now, do you know why God says that? The firstborn, whether of man or beast, it's mine. It's simply, be, remember, this is Exodus. What happened in Exodus? The Passover and the delivering of the children of Israel from slavery. So because God saved the firstborn of every household, now he says, all the firstborn from here forward, they're mine. They're to be set apart to serve me. Except the parents could then offer an offering and redeem the child. And so they are coming and offering an, an offering for Jesus. And what's interesting is Instead of offering a lamb in the law, they could offer uh, a pair of turtle doves or young pigeons. Do you know who could do that? The poor people. And I think it's fascinating that the very people that God trusts to raise his very son are poor. Now, just think about that for a minute. Why would God do it that way? There's a lot of reasons, but I think the main thing that comes to my mind is because that's who he has sent to save and to associate with. It's the rich, the powerful, the affluent. They need to be saved, but they just don't know it. They don't think they need help. And if Jesus was born behind gates in a palace, no one would have any access to him. 
He's born to poor, a poor young couple. They can't offer a lamb, which you know what? Is perfectly fine with God. His announcement, the birth of his announcement is to the shepherds. We talked about last week, which are among the outcast, unclean people in Israel, shepherds, because they kept sheep. So God is doing things in such a way that we have in our minds that he has, he is both righteous and he's accessible. He's one of us and he's done things or his parents have done things the right way. Number five of the eight things that I'm sharing from Luke two is the next, the next five and six, we, it's almost like calling witnesses. He's prophesied over by a man named Simeon. Let's pick up at verse 25. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's just another name for the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Verse 33, and Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, A sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. You know, Mary and Joseph are still figuring this out. And I think of all of us, you parents, have you ever looked at your children and said, who are you? Okay. (laughs) On the days when they annoy you, it's like, well, who are you? You say to your your spouse and go, he's not my child. (laughs) But especially we look at our kids and we're going, who who are you or who are you going to become? And we pay attention to every little detail. You know, my, I have a grandson in bear in rogue river. And at like three, four, five years old, he could throw a basketball. It seemed like across the room and make it in the hoop you know, a little kid's hoop. And I'm going, did you see that? He's amazing. He's going to play in the NBA, but probably not because I'm only five, eight. (laughs) And you don't want to make too much out of all these little things you see, but you know, when your kids are grown, you look back and you go, you're the same person as when you were two and three and four, the little personality quirks. I'll tell you, my daughters, who are all in their 30s, my oldest daughter's 38, she's the same person as when she was three years old. 
She is the same person. She wanted to get throw a party at three years old. She still wants to throw a party at 38 years old. She's highly social, good in front of people. She just spoke at a woman's conference this past week in Portland. She was that person who had too many words when I would, it was just me and her in the car and driving somewhere. And it was like, I can't hear anymore. She would just talk and talk and talk and talk. And she's still doing that. Now people are paying her to do that. And I think, oh, you were the same person. So parents with little kids, pay attention. They are, they are the, they're going to be the same person. And so Mary and Joseph are discovering he is the Messiah. He is Jesus. God is salvation. But more than just the Messiah of Israel, he's going to be a light to the Gentiles. This is way bigger than they even expected. Mary's a teenager. Do you know that? Number six, the second witness, so to speak, is Jesus is prophesied over by a, a woman, a godly woman named Anna. Verse 36. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and she lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. I know this is strange language, strange language but it's all Jewish. And this woman was a, a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from her temple, from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in, in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Israel. Now, the reason we want to know Maybe a little bit of the background of Simeon and Anna, even though this language maybe doesn't relate to us, is we're being told that these are godly people. That's what we need to know. If Luke is recording the testimony and the prophesying by the Holy Spirit about the life of Jesus by these people that we don't know, what we do need to know is that they were called upon because they were godly people who were moved by the Holy Spirit. So Luke is saying we can test, we can trust what they are saying to us. We can trust what they are saying to us. Verse 39. So when they had formed, when he had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Amazing. Number seven, if you're taking notes, is next they bring Jesus to Passover at age 12. So now we're going to move way forward. Luke's just giving us again just the highlights. Verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Now, three times a year, the males of Israel were, were required to come to Jerusalem for three main feasts. And Passover was one of those main feasts. Passover, again, connecting to Exodus, when the angel of death passed over the households and death passed over 
Death of the firstborn passed over in that 10th plague, and the Jews were delivered. So you know this story. Mary and Joseph come to Jerusalem to observe Passover. They did this yearly. And at this point, Jesus is 12 years old. He's coming of age. And after they've observed Passover for those several days, they're on their way back to Nazareth. They've traveled a whole day's journey and discovered that Jesus is not with them. Now, I don't, that doesn't, I don't know, does that sound strange? I have a 12, my oldest grandchild is 12. And for the love of God, he is constantly disappearing. Yeah. It's something about suddenly at 11 years, everybody gets home and everybody's together. Now, uh, my wife and I own a house with my oldest daughter. That's why I'm talking about Asher that annoys me so much. <laughs> Not really. He's 12 and almost as tall as me now. But it just seemed funny lately that he turned 12. As soon as they come in the house, suddenly Asher is gone. He wants to go be independent. And I think of, I don't know if it's right or wrong. I kind of think of Jesus a little bit. He's like acting like a teenager. Um, so they've traveled a day now away and they suddenly discover he's not with them. Now, it, the reason they don't know he's, he's gone is because they traveled as villages. They traveled as caravans. Often even the women and the children would go off ahead of the men and then the men would catch up later because the women and children are traveling slower. And easily at 12 years old, Jesus is going, you know, at the campsite from family to family. Is he with mom? Is he with dad? And so it takes them a day to figure out he's not with anybody. They travel back a day back to Jerusalem, and then it takes them another day to find him. So three days. Sound familiar? Three days. Verse 46. Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Verse 48. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, so why have you done this to us? Sound like a mother, huh? Why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? So even at 12 and we don't, we don't have any idea if it was sooner. Jesus is clear of who he is. He knows exactly. Verse 50, but they did not understand the statement, the statement which he spoke to them. Even at 12, Jesus is amazing the teachers. He's listening. He's asking questions. He's saying things that are, are revealing who he is. Number eight, the last one. This is important in the background of Jesus that he grew up in Nazareth. If you have ever watched, we're going to the holidays, all the discovery and the history channel specials are going to start coming on about the early years of Jesus. Do you know what they're going to say? Strange mythical fictional stories about Jesus. And one 
is that from the age of 12 to 30, what do they call that? The silent years. Where was Jesus? Do they say he was in the Himalayas studying under yogis and gurus? I am not kidding. This is the world we live in. So if that's the Jesus they believe in, do you know what? That's another Jesus. And the Bible says there are many Jesus. So that's the Jesus of whoever, but the Jesus of the Bible. And if anybody ever says that, well, I think Jesus did that. You go, oh, that's your Jesus. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Verse 51, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. Verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So there in Nazareth, he just continues to grow in increase in wisdom and stature. Now, I don't know if you care about all this weird stuff that's going on in the world, but I care. I care because, again, we are increasingly in a world that knows less and less about the Bible. And our calling is not to hide out here at the mall. And just think, oh, great, we got it right. If it's just about being right and not associating with people who got it wrong, then Jesus could have stayed in heaven. But he associated with us when we were lost in our sin and trespasses. So we need to be clear. And not only in being clear, I want you to be confident. It's so important to me that you are confident in who Jesus is because he is saying, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I want you to be confident when there's an upset in your family, when news of cancer comes, when your neighbor knocks on your door and says, we're in trouble. Would you pray for me? Maybe they're not Christians, but they know you are. At that moment, you need to act in the name of Jesus. Not in saying the little phrase at the end of your prayer, but coming as a child of God under the full authority given to you in the name of Jesus. You're not going to go around making wild claims and pretending that you know the mind of God when you don't. But there are those moments when you need calm and confident, clear, clear conviction as you get through this world. Even at your job, somebody's in trouble and you just stop and say, hey, can I pray for you? Your neighbor. And just, you don't make it a big deal. Hey, I believe the Lord can help you. Can I pray for you? Do you know that's why we're here? And so just as Luke is writing to Theophilus, he's writing to us. And we're, Luke 2 is essentially our background check on Jesus. Do you see that? 
Is he the real deal? Was he born? Here's another weird story and worship team, you can come up. Also, people today say that, you know, Jesus was just born as a regular child. It was at his baptism that he became the Christ. Have you ever heard that? Just tune into the History Channel. You'll get there. What do we know from Luke's gospel? That he was born Christ the Savior. We know the right Jesus. We've been given that invitation to know him and to trust him. And we have every confidence, not only that we know him, but he said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. And here we are, we're gathered in the name of Jesus. We have the right to say, Lord, help us. And he's given us that right because we've claimed his name. Amen.